0: For those of you that are visiting with The Point, we're in a series where we're trying to go through the, we're going to do We're going through what we're called the storyline of the Bible. So we're not preaching the entirety of the Bible. We're not even gonna hit every book of the Bible, but we are gonna hit the high places in the Bible. And so we've already looked at creation. We've looked at the fall um, and we've looked at Noah in Genesis um, chapters, let's see, six, seven, eight, nine. I guess actually seven, eight, nine. And now we find ourselves at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And even in the reading of the text, you're gonna think like, okay, I see kind of where you're going, but how does this, how does this apply to my life? Well, I just wanna say this, there's great hope for us in the Tower of the, of Babel and we'll bring it all as the sermon unfolds, we'll bring it all together. We'll talk about our present lives and we'll talk about our future in it. I'm, I, I gotta be honest, I'm pretty excited. So here we go, let's pray. Oh, no, no, we're reading text first and then we're praying. See what I mean? I'm also taking cold medicine today, so... Uh, Ryan, You may need the dump button back there, just hit mute, all right? All right, <clears throat> starting in um, verse number one, and we'll read the first nine verses of the 11th chapter of the book of Genesis. Now the whole Earth had one language and the same words, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Sinar and uh, I'm sorry, Shinar, and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed all over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and, and, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there, there the Lord confused the language of the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let us pray. Father in heaven, um, my prayer is, is that you would help me to preach, to it, to apply your word this morning with passion and precision. Help us um, who will hear this today. May we apply it under the power and the work of the Spirit. May the preaching be in the power of your Spirit. May the hearing be in the power of your Spirit. May your Spirit apply it to our lives and transform us today. What we read here about a tower in antiquity, we hear about confusion of languages. Would you show us how this points us toward the end it points us to where we're going. It speaks to our own frustrations that are in our lives, even today. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. Let me backtrack just a little bit for you um, and cover like kind of in, fast, in a fast way, kind of where we are. Uh, where we left off last week, we left off last week at the end of the, of the flood, the waters had receded and Noah and his family is all that's left in humanity. And so that's uh, the end of Genesis chapter nine. But no doubt what God's doing in Genesis chapter nine is God is repopulating the earth. That what we have in Genesis chapter nine is that what we have is a, is a new humanity being created through Noah and his descendants. It's uh, Noah, Noah is Adam 2.0. That's what Noah serves as. Noah and and his descendants are, they're Adam 2.0. And there's tons of parallels between Genesis chapter nine and Genesis chapter two. We see this even in Genesis chapter nine, uh, verse number seven. It's the creation mandate. It's actually 3.0. It's the third time God has given the creation mandate. And the creation mandate is this, to be fruitful and multiply, to increase greatly on the earth and to multiply in it. Sounds good. It sounds like fun. Be fruitful and multiply. We know how that happens. Everybody says, the adults in the room, we say, Amen. And to increase greatly, I don't know about that part, on the earth and to multiply in it. And then what we see, that's the end of Genesis 9. We see, we see that happening in Genesis nine. We even see the parallels between, uh, between Noah and Adam at the end of Genesis chapter nine, that, uh, that Noah, just like Adam, the, the story ends um, with, uh, with, with Noah being naked in a, in a vineyard and ashamed and his sons being covered. And so it's just like Genesis chapter three ends. But what we see in Genesis chapter 10, is we have the descendants of Noah populating the earth. It's what's called the table of man. From Noah comes 70 groups, 70 peoples, and this uh, 70 are going to populate the earth. Now, the number 70 um, in the Bible is a number that's going to show up often, so you don't apply numerology. That's what that's called. When you look at the numbers, if you take it too far, you get in massive amounts of trouble, but there is, uh, without any doubt, there are numbers that that show up. And seven is one of those numbers. It's the number of completion. And you see it even here in the number 7D. It's the number of completion. It means the totality of humanity on the earth. Now, listen, this could be confusing as you read this. What's happening here is, in, um, is actually Genesis uh, chapter 11 precedes Genesis chapter 10 chronologically. Then in Genesis chapter 10, it's the totality of humanity on the earth. And they're being scattered and then what God's showing in Genesis chapter 11 is how that happened. And it happened in, in a plain in Shinar around a, a tower that they're being built that comes to be known as the tower of Babel in a city that will be Babel. And so what we see in Genesis chapter 11 is we see man's disobedience. They are not filling the earth. That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 11. There's disobedience here. The disobedience is, is that God has told them, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly. We see that happening. That's Genesis chapter 10. They're increasing greatly. God's God's doing that. You've gone gone from three boys now to 70 different people, tribes, nations, that's happened here. But he's also told them now, fill the earth. And why are they filling the earth? Why are they just spread out? Well, They're to fill the earth with the glory of God. That's the purpose of humanity. Why has God created you and I? Why has he created this earth? Well, he's created us in his likeness and his image. And he's put us here on the earth as a reflection of his glory. And he wants us to to spread around the whole earth in, in God's glory. That's why he's given us. And they've not done that. They're not filling the earth with the glory of God. They're not spreading out and filling the earth. They've clumped all together into one little plane and it's disobedience. And that's no small thing. Secondly, we see another level of disobedience and maybe a greater problem, maybe a greater issue, an outworking of sin, an outworking of the fall of Adam is happening in the hearts of these men and women. Let's look back at the text and see if you can pick it up. Now, the whole earth had one language and all the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. They settled there. And then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. Let's burn them thoroughly. They had bricks for stone and they had bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, here it is, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now the sin is not making bricks and the sin is not finding mortar. The sin is not building a city or the sin is not making even a tower. The sin is in the reason why they were doing all of those sayings. The sin is in, especially in in verse number four. They aim to make a name for themselves. So what they're looking for here is they're looking for significance and greatness in themselves rather than in the creator who has created them. See, nothing is said there about God nor his glory. Here's what I want you to do. I put you on the earth. I want you to fill the earth with the glory of God. Know what we want to do is we're going to stay in one place and we want to build a tower in order to make a name for ourselves. We're looking for significance. We're looking for greatness. Second is, their second aim is they aim not to be dispersed over the whole earth. They want to establish and put down roots in this one particular place. And what they're looking for there is they're looking for Security. So even in their desire to make a name for themselves and their, secu- their desire to stay put in one place, what they're really looking for is they're really looking for significance and greatness and security. Hold on to those because you and I struggle around those same issues. We want, we're looking for significance. We want our lives to matter. We're looking for greatness. We want to establish ourselves. We want to be published. We want to be known. And we look for security oftentimes. And we do all of those oftentimes divorced from God. Now, What's beneath that? One of the questions we always ask ourselves whenever we see sin and disobedience in the Bible, we ask ourselves, what's the sin beneath the sin? And so what's feeding all of this? What's feeding their desire for significance, their desire for greatness, their desire for security? What is feeding all of this? We're gonna make a name for ourselves. We're gonna build a tower. What's feeding that in one word? We see the depth of corruption and sin and humanity. The source of this is our greatest problem it's this one word, it's the greatest manifestation of sin shows up, it's what comes before the fall, it is pride. Pride. Pride is making much of man and making much of self rather than making much of God. And the root of most sin is pride. And what pride says is by my will, by my strength, for my glory, that's what pride says. And it's the root of almost every sin. In fact, my grandfather would say that in the, in the middle of every sin is, is I. Wait, what's in the middle of sin, S-I-N, is an I, it's you, it's me, it's, it's our pride. It's what I want instead of what God wants. It's in my strength instead of God's strength. It's so that I get glory, I get attention, I get praise, I get accolades, I get noticed, I have significance and not for his praise, not for his glory, not for him. Let me just say this, the pride seems benign to us, does it not? I mean, it seems like almost a a pardonable sin because we all struggle with it. It's not all that popular to preach against. Probably many of us grew up in churches' traditions where we heard about all of the woes and the problems with drinking and drugs and, and, and uh, illicit sex. And we talked about smoking and chewing tobacco and all of those things, but probably didn't hear a lot of sermons on pride. And yet pride is at the very root of our sins. It shows up often. In fact, pride is satanic in its nature. That when we're acting prideful, we're acting like a, uh, the father of all prideful actions, Satan himself. That when we read Genesis chapter 11, it's satanic in its nature. And here's what I mean by this. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. The prophet Isaiah writes this, and this is what he says. Now listen, as we read this and hear this and see if this doesn't sound familiar to what's happening in Genesis chapter 11. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the North. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Who said that? Well, actually, it's one of those prophecies in Isaiah and sometimes when you read Old Testament prophecies, it applies to two different people. It's true about two different people. And you, you want to make sure we apply it to both. It has a double meaning. It's certainly true of Satan. And it is revealing to us the pride that was in Satan that came before creation in the fall. We talked about that a couple, either last week or oh, two weeks ago. We talked about that. There's a fall that takes place preceding Genesis chapter three, a fall among the angels that the angel Lucifer, Satan led. And what was at the root of that? Well, he, we have it here. It was, it was Satan, Lucifer's pride, that led him in rebellion against God. It's said of that, but also if you were to look in Isaiah chapter 14, and if you had a Bible with headings, it would say it's also not just a prophecy given of Satan, but it's also a prophecy of the ruler of Babylon, a ruler of Babylon, the Tower of Babel will remain. And the Tower of Babel, where the Tower of Babel stands, a city will, be, will begin, a city will be built. And then that city will become a nation and it will become the nation of Babylon. From the Tower of Babel comes Babylon. And Babylon is gonna show up throughout the Bible. You just will grab a hold of it as we thought. Think about and preach through the storyline of the Bible, Babylon is going to show up. Here's the first time we've seen it, the essence of it, and it is known throughout the Bible as the city of man. The Babylon will become a symbol of mankind's opposition against God. It's the epitome of wickedness. It, becomes, it will become one of Israel's fiercest enemies. The kingdom that will destroy and take Israel captive is the nation of Babylon. Babylon... It represents a symbol of mankind's united front against God. It won't just happen in the Old Testament. When you get into the book of Revelation, guess what shows up again? The city of Babylon, because it's a city of man. It's man in his rebellion and his opposition against God. That Babylon represents the full fruition of our sin, but it begins here in Genesis 11. And it begins in us with a heart that simply says, my will, not God's will. I will make a name for myself. I will set out to have significance and importance in life apart from God. Let's take some notes about pride. Let's really get after what uh, pride is all about. And as even, the sermon series, as even the sermon is entitled, The Problem of Pride, look at how pride works. Number one, pride takes God's gifts that are to be received with gratitude and stewarded for his glory. And it makes them a platform for self. What pride does is it takes God's gifts. What gifts? Well, these are common grace gifts we see happening in Genesis chapter 11. We looked at that at the end of Noah in the in, in the covenant that God makes with Noah. It's a covenant of common grace that God says, I'm gonna be gracious with humanity whether you believe in me and worship me or whether you not. I'm gonna give you my grace, my common grace, not salvific grace to be saved, but common grace so that we can, it's, it, so we can, um, experience peace and harmony in this life. And so the common grace that's happening that we read in Genesis chapter 11 are some simple things like the common grace of children, the common grace of families, the common grace of a blessing of generations. God's doing that and giving this to them, even though they're rebellious. We even see the common grace of ingenuity. See the common grace of intelligence. Intelligence. See, common grace of abilities. I, I mean, this wasn't man's idea. Hey, let's make some bricks, right? Hey, you know what we could do with all this mud? We got all this mud. Let's mix it together with something else, right? Some straw, whatever, some gravel. Let's put it together. Let's put it in, a, in the fire. Let's burn it. And now look, what we got? We got something sturdy, there was a time when they probably lived in huts and now what they're doing is they're actually making bricks to build cities and this is God's common grace to his people. He's leading them there. He's allowing them to do this. This whole ability to do all of this, to now live in a a strong home, has all been given to them from God. Cities are being built. These are all common grace gifts but instead of them receiving them with thanksgiving and stewarding them for man's common good and to God's glory, they're going to use those common common grace gifts in order to make a name for themselves, in order to prove themselves, to establish significance for themselves apart from God, to get glory for themselves instead of give glory to God. Can I just say that not much has changed? In the generations that's passed, in the thousands of years, we want to somehow think that we've like grown past a lot of this. That we've traded in bricks now for like two by fours and, you know, and bricks still, right? but two by fours and drywall and other things that we build homes with. But the same pattern we see here in Genesis chapter 11 is the same pattern that we struggle with. Their struggle is our struggle. We too, we struggle with pride we struggle with it in similar ways. You and I, we too, we take the gift of God's common grace, families and good jobs and healthy relationships and intelligence and ingenuity. And instead of using it to spread the glory of God, we use it for selfish reasons. To build up more security, to prove our significance, to make a name for ourselves. One of the lessons that's being learned here in Genesis chapter 11 is you could do something good, like build a tower, and can still be completely consumed with pride. So let me just ask you just a few diagnostic questions about your own heart. Is this you? Do you take God's common grace gifts and do you use them as a platform for self, or do you use them for God's glory? Whose will are you living by? Are you living by your will or by God's will? Ultimately, that's what pride says, right? Ultimately, the, the song of the prideful is the song of, uh, is it Frank Sinatra that said, "I'll I'll do it my way, right? That's the song of the prideful and yet, We Our hearts resonate with that because that's the way we want to live our lives. Lord, I'll live my life governed by my will, by what I want, by what I desire, rather than what you have said. And so let me ask you, are you living your life today even? By your will or by God's will? Whose strength do you pour into? Do you attempt to meet each day with? Whose strength are you pulling from? Is it your strength or or God's strength? You know where pride ultimately shows up? It ultimately shows up in our prayer lives. People who don't pray much, especially pray about even themselves. I'm I talking about intercessory prayer where we're praying for and we're praying for this people. People who don't pray much for themselves, asking God to help them are prideful people. And there is in the Bible a a sin of prayerlessness. That's what the Bible says, that prayerlessness is a sin because what you're saying is, God, I don't need you. I don't need your strength. I don't need your power. I can do it. I can do it in my own strength, in my own power. What we're even going to say is most of the frustrations in your life probably lead to where you've tried to live your life in your strength and in your power rather than God's. And ultimately, what Jesus says is, apart from me, you can do nothing. And many of you, you will look at your lives, even today, and you'll say, but I've made all of these accomplishments. I've graduated school, and I got a degree, and I got a good job, and I had a good family, and I've done all of these things, and I live a moral life. I've done all of those things, and I've never once asked for Jesus' strength. And what Jesus isn't saying there is you won't accomplish anything. But he says, in the end, in the final analysis, whenever I judge you and I judge your works, your works will be burned up because you have used them as a platform for self rather than my glory. That you've been made in my image to reflect my glory and my beauty all over this earth. That ultimately it shows up, whether you're doing it in your strength or his strength, his power, it shows up in in how grateful you are for what God gives you. It shows up in prayer. Whenever you say, God, thank you for health. Thank you, God, for healthy kids. God, thank you for the home that I live in. God, thank you for the job that I have. It shows up in a posture of the heart that is humble, that shows up in us asking God for help and in us giving thanks for all of the common grace, goodness that God gives to us. Whose glory are you the most concerned with? Your glory or His glory? Pride says my glory, my accolades. I wanna be known. I wanna have significance. I want people to see me, but humility, godly humility says, no, I do all of this so that people will see Christ. So people will see God so that he will get the glory. Listen, it is impossible to glorify both self and God at the same time. You can't do it. Either you will glorify self or you will glorify God. And what is, what's the harmony of your life? What is your life all about? Is it about you and getting and gaining and building and doing, or is it about God and what God would have you to build and what God would give you and how God might use you? Is it about your glory or God's glory? Look at this, verse number five, we see God's response to their sin. We see God's response to their pride. I love it, verse number five, and the Lord came down. Oh my goodness. And God came down to see the city and the tower whom the children of man had built. It wasn't like he couldn't see it in, from heaven. I mean, what what, what Moses is, Moses is telling the story to the children of Israel, he's reminding them that God is a God who comes down. I also love it in the fact that here they are trying to build a tower to reach up to God. They build and they build and they build and they do. And yet God still has to come down. I would even say way down. It's the futility of our efforts, the futility of our greatness and the grace of God and a God who comes down. Verse number six, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there, confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of, language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. This isn't God protecting them from being or doing something that God would, that would somehow threaten God. It's not gonna threaten God's greatness. It's not gonna threaten God's glory. This isn't God protecting himself from man. Rather, this is God protecting man from man. What we see happening here in verse numbers six, five and six, is we see something that God is doing that is corrective. It's parental intervention here. But even as we read in verse number seven of God confusing their language, let me ask you, do you think this is God's judgment? or is this God's mercy? I'll let you think about that a second. Is this God's judgment or is this God's mercy? It's both, I cheated, it's both. This is God's merciful judgment coming to his people. No doubt they're being disobedient. No doubt they are being sinful. They're being satanic in their pride. But remember God's response to the people's sin in the days of Noah, what was it? It was a heap of judgment and very little mercy. What you've got here is you've got like a, a pound of mercy and an ounce of judgment coming in the dispersion of the languages. What's coming in the, in the form of punishment, but nevertheless, it is mostly Merciful that any time, uh, any judgment that God would render before the ultimate judgment is mercy. What God does is he confuses their language. That's what he does. That says how the, how the verdict comes. This is the punishment is God is going to confuse their, lang- their, their languages. He didn't bring ultimate judgment and destroy them like he did in the days of the flood, but instead he confuses and disperses them. In fact, In the Hebrew, that's what the Old Testament is written in, the Hebrew language. In the Hebrew, the word used for brick is the same word that's used for confusion of what God does. Only the letters are all jumbled up. And so what God is basically saying is what I've done here in this judgment is I've unbricked humanity. I've disconnected humanity. And the way that he's done that is by showing the foolishness of human pride. The way that he's done that is he's confused all of the languages. And so whenever you said, hey, bring me that shovel, the guy thought that you were saying, hey, I'm gonna punch you in the nose. I mean, trouble would arise from that, right? Whenever I mean, you ever tried to communicate with somebody that doesn't speak? For those of you here that are like myself, that speak fluent redneck, that's what I speak, you know? And if you ever tried to talk to somebody else that speaks a different language, how confusing that can be. I mean, even me, I have uh, two scars on these two fingers where when I worked for my dad's construction company, I was working with a guy who was a Spanish speaking um, employee. And I told the employee, we're putting together pipe. And I told the employee, wait, I want to clean out this pipe. And I guess in his Spanish understanding, he thought I said, shove the pipe together. I mean, right? I guess that's what that means in Spanish. And so he shoved the pipe together, cutting my fingers inside. And so... Um, you know, there we are, I go, you know, I go to the hospital, that's what happens there. It's a reminder of uh, of all of the trips that we've taken to Haiti. I remember one particular trip that we took to Haiti early on, and uh, my brother-in-law, Bill Jones, went with me as a small group of people, and Bill's grandmother and a group of ladies in her senior citizen's home had sewn together these pillows and had made them for these Haitian children and had made these dresses for them. And we arrived with gifts that we want to give. And Bill wanted to tell the kids where the gifts came from. He wanted to explain it to them so they could understand. My grandmother, who's who's a double amputee, lost both of her legs, has sat in a wheelchair, and she's made these for you to to have them. So Bill wanted to tell them. Well, then we start going, well, where's the translator? And our translator had already gotten on the bus and was going back home. And so we go, okay, how can we tell them? And there's another lady on our trip and she says, hey, I can speak French. And then one of the Haitian guys, well, I can speak from, if you could speak French, I can go French to Creole. And so Bill speaks fluent bald <laughs> So he speaks and Miss Hobbs translates from that English, kind of, into French. And then this other guy translates from French into Creole. And I'm standing back here watching it and watching these kids' faces and all they look like is confused. Like I know there is no way possible they understand what Bill is saying and they're getting that translated. Whenever I travel overseas and go and preach, there's nothing any more frustrating than trying to for me, trying to preach and have a translator beside me doing all of the translations because you preach a second and then you got to wait and while he's while he's saying my mind fills in the gaps with one trillion things that I want to say while I'm waiting for him to finish, right? It doesn't work very well. Speaking in foreign countries with ADD doesn't work very well. It leads to frustration and confusion. And that's what God's judgment does. It leads to frustration and confusion and scatters. But let me just say this before I move on that sometimes God's merciful judgment, even in our lives comes in the form of frustration and confusion and disappointment. That God will graciously lead us to places of frustration and he will frustrate your prideful plans in order to bring you to repentance. That when God came down, he didn't come and topple over the tower. In fact, it says that it was left, the city was left in place. God left it there and he left it there as a symbol and a reminder of their disobedience that led to frustration and led to disappointment. And this is where this intersects with our lives. Let me ask you, where are those towers in your life? Where are the places where you and your pride to make a name for yourself has only led to you to frustration? The places where you wanted to get to glory instead of giving glory to God. and now as you look back on that thing, it is like a, it's like a tombstone, of frustration. It's like a symbol and a monument of your, of your own confusion. the places where you've tried to achieve security and greatness and significance, and where you've tasted disappointment, in broken relationships, where you're looking for significance and meaning in another human and you just simply suck the life out of the relationship, where you you allow disobedience to, to remain in the relationship, the frustration with your job where you're constantly moving around, looking for meaning and significance and value and security in a job, and you just keep thinking it's just around the corner, maybe with this next promotion, Maybe if I move over here and move over there, but it's only leading you to further, further frustration. That's God's merciful. Oftentimes it's God's merciful judgment in your life. Saying don't bend towards those small things. Don't bend towards those weak things. I've got something greater in store. I'm holding for you a relationship with me. That's the only place where you're going to find significance. That's the only place where you're gonna find lasting greatness is when you connect to me who is greater. In your poor financial decisions, the next purchase will bring me. Maybe you've outsourced your joy and you're looking to alcohol and to drugs and to pornography or whatever else that may be. As John Calvin rightly said, our hearts are like idol making factories and those idols, they never deliver what they promise. It only leads to brokenness and addiction and more brokenness and more brokenness and broken promises from a broken world will only bring brokenness into your heart and life. And I hope what you understand and what you get from this text is the fact that in the midst of your disappointment in your broken towers, it's God sending a message to you. They're all there for a reminder to receive God's mercy, that God loves you so much that he came down here to this earth, he came for you. Listen, this chapter ends with the future looking very dark for humanity. They're scattered and they're confused, but the beauty is for us who have the whole story. See, God will do something very similar again. See, God will toy with, God will toy with the languages of the people again in the Bible. In fact, we could say this, that what God scatters in judgment here in Genesis 11, will one day be gathered for worship. That God messes with the languages of the people in Acts chapter two. You gotta fast forward quite a ways in the storyline of the Bible, but it comes back up. That in Acts chapter two, what we have is Jesus has already lived his perfect life. He's already died on a cross. He's already been laid in a tomb and he's already been resurrected from the dead. He's already ascended on high. And the last words that Jesus gave to his disciples was, hey, wait in the city for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Wait in one particular city, the city of Jerusalem, and wait on the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then when the Holy Spirit comes, he says, then you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, let me back up and just say this. There's always a problem with God's people when it comes to scattering. We don't like to scatter very well as God's people. That God's always pushing his people to look outward and to multiply towards sending and giving in order to live for God's glory. But simple man, we always look inward towards building for our own security and our own glory. Happens all through the Bible. And God has to send something to scatter the people. That's what we see here in, in Genesis chapter 11. He confuses the language in order to send them. What he does in Jerusalem, they all want to stay in Jerusalem and he sends, this is just a side note, but then he sends persecution in order to scatter them. But the truth is, as we as God's people in here, this is true for us. We don't like to scatter all that well. We don't like to think outwardly. We like to think inwardly. We don't like to think about how can we serve God's glory outside of these four or 44 walls that we have. We want to think about how can we serve selves and how can we grow in security? And yet God, I think that Genesis chapter 11 is a good picture for those of us who've been part of the Point Community Church preceding the last three years. I think Genesis chapter 11 is a great sermon for us. How did we end up in the middle of Thornhill or on the front end of Thornhill? Well, we got too comfortable over there in that leaky factory. We just got real comfortable with our small group of people and God scattered us and dispersed us and placed us here. And why has he placed us here? He's placed us here so that we can show his glory to a community behind us and a street beside us and up here on this hill and all over central Frankfurt. He's placed us here so that we can scatter. That's why whenever Pastor Derek, in a few minutes, he will give a benediction, And Derek will say, Pastor Derek will say in that benediction, now I want you to go be the church. Why do we say that every week? Because we need reminders that our mission is outside of these walls, not inside of these walls. This summer we will spend, we will do at least four summer outreach programs. And we desperately need your help. We need your help to be a smiling face. We need, you a, we need your sweat equity as we set up tables and we interact with kids, as we think about ways that we can spread God's glory out of these walls and invite people into these walls to know Christ and to multiply disciples. We desperately need your help. That Last year, the lion's share of the, of the load of the work of the summer outreaches fell upon the staff of the church and a select few people. Now, We got it done, but we need you. And we need to think, we need to use God's common grace gifts that he's given to us, like ingenuity and bouncy houses and whatever else we could think of, better food as a better means to reach outward and to think of others. And so I think this is a good word for us. But back to the picture of God scatters in judgment. One day he will gather for worship. Back into the picture of the day of Pentecost that he says, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's gonna empower you. You're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth, you are gonna be my witnesses. And something mystical happens that the apostle Peter gets filled with the Holy Spirit and apostle Peter steps outside of that um, out, outside of that room and it's the day of Pentecost because uh, in the Jewish tradition, Pentecost is a, is a Jewish festival that's already happened. It's a celebration of the giving of the Law. It's what it's a celebration of. And it's a pilgrimage pilgrimage festival. So Jews from all over the nations, right? All over the world have traveled in. All of the Middle East have traveled into Jerusalem. So there's people there that speak all these different dialects and all of these different languages. And the apostle Peter stands in front of them and he preaches the gospel. And as he preaches the gospel, God does a miracle. And the miracle is the undoing of the Tower of Babel. That all of these people, they hear the Apostle Peter preach the gospel in their own dialect, in their own tongue. He's speaking something. I don't know what, possibly speaking Aramaic, possibly speaking Greek. He's speaking something, but as he speaks, the miracle is in the hearing and he preaches the gospel to them. He tells them of who Jesus is. He tells them that you're the ones that have killed Christ. Christ has been killed by you and for you. That's the message. You're the ones that have nailed the hands to Jesus because of your sin, but he's died for your sin. His blood is on your hands, but take his blood into your heart because it's in Christ. You can find forgiveness for your sins. And as he preaches that people begin to believe. And then the crowd responds by asking Peter a question. What must we do to be saved then, Peter? Tell us what we need to do to be saved. And Peter says two things you must do to be saved. Number one is you must repent and you must be baptized. That's the two things for the forgiveness of your sins. The first one is found in repentance. And what we see in repentance is we see the real undoing of the Tower of Babel because what was the real issue with the Tower of Babel? Man's pride. That was the real issue in the Tower of Babel. And what is God's solution to our pride? Isn't for us to try to grow in humility. Isn't tried for us to try to forget yourself, try not to act like you're number one. God's solution isn't in your power. God's solution is in his power. God's solution is in the coming of the Holy Spirit. See, pride is ultimately a disposition of the heart. It's a heart that is pride, a heart that is arrogant, a heart that is haughty. And what God wants to do is God wants to give you a new heart through the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hasn't come so that you speak in tongues like Peter did. The Holy Spirit has come to make you new. But even in what we see in Noah, what we'll see in Israel, what we see over and over again in this pattern of a new humanity and a new people is being culminated in us as the church, a new humanity and a new people that are filled with the Spirit and are changed. And as is new humanity, what you and I get, is so we get a new disposition. The theological word for that is regeneration. The Holy Spirit comes and he regenerates you and he makes you new and he breaks your old sinful disposition and gives you a new simple, a new, not sinful, a new disposition towards Christ. In fact, it can be said like this. You can symbolize the posture of your heart, the posture of your disposition, in one of two ways, or in two ways, let's just say in two ways. In in these symbols, in a throne and in a cross. In both a throne and a cross. And here's the deal, if you are on the throne of your life, if you are in ultimate control of your life, if you are living your life by your strength, your power, you say yes, you say when, you say where, you say what I'm going to do. I'm in control over my life. And if my life somehow gets out of my control, then I completely wig out and freak out. If you are on the throne of your life and Jesus is on the cross, And what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's on the cross as a testimony to say that there's a better way to live. I'm on the cross because of your rebellion, because you're living in rebellion, because you were never meant to be on the throne of your life. Your life from day one has been about God and his glory, about you being a reflection. You've been made in his image and his likeness to fill the earth with the light, to fill the darkness with the light. And so if you are on the throne, then Christ is on the cross and he's beckoning and he's telling you that there's a better way to live. And he's giving his life as a sacrifice, as a substitute, as forgiveness for the your running and ruining, let me just say, you running and ruining your life. And what the Christian life is, is repentance. It's renouncing you living on the throne of your life. It's you taking a humble posture. See, the flip is true. If you were on the throne of your life, then Christ is on the cross. But if Christ is on the throne of your life, then you were on the cross, his cross. That's what Paul writes in Galatians. I am therefore crucified with Christ Jesus. It's no longer I that live, but it's Christ who lives in me that if Christ is on the throne of your life, reigning and ruling and leading and supplying you with power and leadership and giving significance to your life and telling you, giving greatness to your life, that it frees you to live a crucified life for him, to crucify your flesh, to crucify your sinful disposition on the cross and to always look to him. He says, repent and be baptized. The baptism part is... God's judgment has passed over you. See, baptism is, goes back to Noah's flood. And what we see in Noah's flood is judgment. And what your baptism says is that that judgment has passed over you and you've been brought back into newness of life. It's now undoing that need for significance in your life by giving you a new name, Christ's name, a better name where you no longer need to make a name for yourself. And in fact, this morning, we have an opportunity to remember that. Now we're not gonna bring a dunking booth out here and re-baptize everybody, but for those of us that have been baptized, it would be good for us to remember what baptism signifies and what baptism means as we think about our own baptisms. And in baptism, what you're saying is Jesus' judgment has been, God's judgment has been poured out on Jesus and no longer me, but I've been rescued from that and brought into newness of life and been given a new name. That's why we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder of that, that I don't have to live for my own greatness. I don't have to live to make a name for myself. I can live to make his name known. So we remember that as you sit here, but we have the other ordinance that Jesus gave his church which is the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder for those of us who sometimes climb and ascend the throne of our own life. It's a reminder that Jesus has come for that rebellion. That Jesus has gave his life to say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a better king than you are. Didn't he? Like how much more disappointment and emptiness do you need to go down to realize that? that he's a better king and a better ruler and a better leader over your life than you are? And do you recognize that? Does it show up in your prayers? Does it show up in living a life of gratitude and thanksgiving and leaning into him? Or does it show up as you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, trying harder and doing more? This is a reminder, Jesus is saying, that you don't have to do that. You don't have to live like that. There's a better way. The better way is through me, through my power, through my ways. The way that we take the Lord's Supper here at the Point Community Church is we have um, bread that has already been cut up for you. It represents Christ's body that's been broken for us. Christ's body that was broken because of our sin. That Christ has died by us because of our sin and for us so that we may find forgiveness. It's also in the Lord's Supper, He gave us a cup. Jesus held up a cup of wine and said, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. We remember that by drinking a small cup of juice. But it reminds us we are not our own, that we belong to Him, that He is on the throne, reigning and ruling supreme. That is true. But do you live your life with that posture? Jesus, I trust you in everything. Jesus, I want your life to be about your glory, you getting more glory, me pointing people to you, people seeing that it's not me, but it's you, your name. That's what I want my life to be about. That's the Christian life. Christian life isn't just broken traditions or religious religion made by man. The Christian life is us living under the power of the Holy Spirit to make Christ known, among the nations. Jesus, be near us in this moment. Superintend over this moment, Lord. Lord, may we just be present with you and present with your spirit as you speak to our hearts. As you move across this room, Lord. Lord, if there's people in this room who need to repent, I pray, the Lord, that you would grant that. In your merciful judgment, you would grant repentance. If there's people here that just feel frustrated by life and it just seems like life is nothing but one disappointment after another disappointment after another disappointment. And they just feel so weak. Lord, I pray that you would lead them to lean into you and your power and your strength. Jesus, I pray that you would just, um, as we remember that it's your, your blood has been shed and your body has been broken because of our pride, our sin, so much of our sin has come because of our pride. And Lord, may we remember that. May we remember the sacrifice. May we live for your glory, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen.